However big Jesus is in your heart and in your mind right now, the truth is Jesus is bigger. And in the passage that we're going to look at in Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 20, we see glimpses of the majesty, the grandeur, the greatness, the power and the glory of Jesus. And in this short series, we're going to do four sessions looking at um, a praying for us to see a bigger Jesus so that we can have a better Christmas. We're not just saying how about having a better Christmas to say that that means our sprouts will be perfect or the turkey will be just right or everybody will be happy with their presents. Not that kind of better Christmas, but as we think on the truths of Christmas, uh, we will see that it is glorious and we can rejoice in however we find Christmas. As we look ahead to the Christmas season, maybe you're daunted and you're worried or you're concerned because, well, maybe there's so much to do or maybe you're just not looking forward to it because of how it brings up sad memories of the past. Well, as we come to look at Jesus, I pray that whatever we make of Christmas time, the Christ in Christmas will be big and will be wonderful and glorious to us. So we need a bigger view of Jesus. We need a greater view of him. And when we get that, it'll help us in so many ways. Maybe this morning you're feeling fearful about different things. We need to see a bigger Jesus. Maybe you're feeling guilty this morning and, and, and weighed down in shame. You need to see a bigger Jesus. Maybe you're despondent or discouraged. Maybe you feel complacent. Maybe you want to give up. We need a bigger Jesus. So let's, in our hearts and our, in our minds now, pray that as we look at these passages, uh, that we would see how great, something of how great he is. So the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to a church in Colossae. And there, uh, in this, this young church, false teachers have come in and they're teaching something different uh, to the true gospel. They're saying that Jesus on his own isn't enough, or you need more than him. Whether that is you need these extra rules of do's and don'ts, or whether it is you need greater experiences, you need more than Jesus. Jesus isn't enough. And Paul's big theme in this letter is in chapter 2 verse 6 we see, we see, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. You've got it all in Christ. And you've, you need to grow more and more in him. It's not found elsewhere. And so as Paul writes about Jesus, he wants us to see, and, and this letter shows that Jesus is big. Jesus is enough. So maybe today as we come to look at this passage, our heart might have grown cold towards Jesus. Well, let's pray that we see him as glorious and more attractive by the time we've come to the end of this passage. Now, as we look at it, we're going to see three things about Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus and God, Jesus and the universe, and Jesus and us. And as we think of this passage, I, I cannot do it justice. It is a glorious passage, one of the most kind of glorious passages about who Jesus is in the whole of the Bible. And so please, as we're looking at this, pray with me that God would open the eyes of our heart by his spirit to see more of Jesus. Please pray that Jesus would be big this morning in our hearts and lives. John Owen, who was a pastor in the 17th century, said this, Beholding the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges that believers are capable of in this world. One of the greatest privileges that we can, behold, we can have in this world as Christians is beholding the glory of Christ. So let's look at these three things about Jesus this morning. First of all, let's look at Jesus and God. Jesus and God. Verse 15, we're told this. He is the image of of the invisible God. Who is Jesus? The first thing, he's the image of the invisible God. Now, one of the reasons we can drift away from God and the reality of God can kind of be um, less in our lives is because, well, we can see other things, can't we? 
We can see the things that pull us away from God so obviously, but God is invisible, we're told. That's what we're told in the Bible. He, he's invisible. And so it's tempting to turn elsewhere because other things are more readily available, other things are more visible. And so Jesus, uh, what is his role in this? Well, look what we're told. God makes himself visible in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. How can we know what God's like? We look at Jesus. How can we know what he loves? We look at Jesus. How can we know how he responds in different situations? We look at Jesus, because as Jesus himself says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or you read in 2 Corinthians 4, again there it says he's the image of God. Or as we read in Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Isn't that huge? Isn't that glorious? We can't see God, but God has made himself visible through his Son, the Lord Jesus. Now imagine for a moment that none of us have TVs or radios or the internet or anything like that or newspapers, and we wondered what the President of America was like. We wondered what Joe Biden was like. And we get a letter from him. And we read the letter and we realize that it's big, you know, it's quality paper. And we think, oh, well, he must be important. Yeah, he must have a big, important job. Uh, and, uh, and we think, well, he's the president of America. Okay, so that's something of what he's like. Then he phones us. I don't know why, but he ends up phoning us. And we listen to his accent. We think, oh, he sounds older in age. You know, a bit doddery with his speech, maybe. We think, okay, so we're trying to place him now in our minds. And we try and work out what he's like. I think that's a strange accent he's got, but okay. So he's powerful, he's important, he's got this, this is what he sounds like. And then we see a picture. And we see something of what he looks like, smart and well-presented, uh, with his white hair. And in your mind, you put all these things together and you're wondering what he's like. But then one day, you get a knock on the door, and there he is. Joe Biden with all his um, bodyguards and everything there, standing in front of you. And there he is, he is there. You don't need to work it out anymore. You don't need to try and work out or guess, because he's right, standing right in front of you. In the same way, when it comes to God, Jesus shows us what he's like. So that means we can't say, I think God is like this, because God will be exactly like and is exactly like Jesus. So when we come to read about Jesus in the, in the, old, in the, um, in the Gospels, we see this is what God is like. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're wondering, well, is God real? If he is, what is he like? The Bible tells us that God has shown up. And that's one of the glories of the Christmas time, is we think he's come. And so our guessing is over, he has appeared, and Jesus, as we're told here, is the image of the invisible God. Read the accounts of his life. That's what God is like. There's no surprise behind God. Jesus shows us what he's like. And just in case we missed it, did you see verse 19? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God squeezed into the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So we believe that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but united together in love. And they're not kind of, don't imagine a pie cut into three. Yeah, there's a, they're a third of God. No, the Bible teaches that the, 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 the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally and fully God in a way that is mind-blowing and mind-expanding. But we're told you the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. So all of the eternal, all of the mighty God dwells in him, condensed into him. 
Now think about that for a minute as we come to Christmas. The one born in the manger is the one who is fully God. That means at one point in history, if we were there, you could have looked into the eyes of God. If we were there in Bethlehem, you could have held God in your arms. He could have held your finger as babies do. You could have listened to him speak. You could have asked him questions. You could have seen uh, how he responded to people. Here he was, God in the flesh. What an amazing thought. God made visible. God with us, Emmanuel. As we think on that, and as we'll continue to think of that as we work through the passage, one of the, our responses to this is just to be amazed, just to sit back and say, wow, God has come. He's here. He's, he's been with us. But also this morning, if you're not sure about Jesus, if you're thinking, well, I don't know what to make of him, and you kind of put him aside for the rest of your life, and maybe Sunday crops up and you kind of, oh, I have to think about Jesus again. We cannot sit on the, f- on the fence with Jesus. Either he is God or he's not. And if he is, that must change everything. It must change everything. We can't ignore him. As C.S. Lewis put it, isn't it? He is either mad, that is, he thought he was God, but he isn't. Bad, that is, he knew he wasn't, but he was lying, or he's God. Mad, bad, or God. He's got to be one of those three. And if he's mad, why would you listen to any of his words? He's crazy. If he's bad and evil and sinister, why would you listen to his words? You can't trust the word he says. If he's either of those two things, we might as well all go home. But if he is God, then he must, he demands our attention and our lives. So the first thing we see in this passage is Jesus and God. He is the image of the invisible God. Let's secondly now look at Jesus and the universe. This is where we get the idea of the cosmic Jesus for. If that isn't big enough that the, 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 the God who made us was condensed into uh, human form, well, look what Paul tells us next. Jesus, we're told three things about him in these verses. First, we're told in verse 15, he is the reason for everything. He's the reason for everything. Um, Look at the end of verse 15. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now, sometimes when you think of the firstborn, you might think, well, does that mean he's the first created? That's how some people have taken this verse and interpret it. And they say, well, he can't be God because it tells us he was the firstborn. But actually, that's not talking so much as um, him being born first. That's not what it's saying. It's actually telling us that he was, um, he was he's the heir, the most important. The firstborn in the Bible and in Bible times was the one who had a place of real importance in the family. All of the inheritance would come to the firstborn. And so this passage is telling us not that Jesus was created. In fact, later on, we're going to see that he's the creator. So he can't be the created one. He instead, no, is the firstborn. He has a special place of honour. Everything is his. He's the heir of all things. He's going to get everything as his inheritance. So verse 16, we're told that just to confirm if we miss it. Um, all things were created through him, which we'll look in a minute, and for him. Through him and for him. Do you see, Jesus is the reason for everything. Why was anything made? It was made for Jesus. The Father loved the Son so much that as a glorious gift to him, he presented the universe. And that changes how we look at things, doesn't it? When we look up at the night sky, 
If we were in a good dark place, we'd be able to see four to 5,000 stars that are visible to us. But that's nothing compared to the kind of hundreds of billions of stars that there are and the hundreds of billions of galaxies that are there after that. And why was all of that made? It was made for Jesus. Why, when we think about the wonders of the world, like you know, the, the Amazon or the Grand Canyon or Victoria Falls, when we think about the Northern Lights or the Barrier Reef, why was the beauty of all that, why was it made? It was made for Jesus. It doesn't just exist for being existence's sake. It exists for him. It's why everything is there. He is the purpose for everything, and he is going to inherit everything. It's all for him. We don't just exist. It doesn't just exist out there with no other purpose. It exists for one purpose, would be to bring glory and for Jesus. That means that we were made for him. We were made as a gift, as it, as it were, as an inheritance for him. We were made to enjoy him, made to glorify him, made to live for him, made to be part of uh, that glorious relationship within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Spirit. We were made to be enveloped into that love. That's what we were made for. So today, maybe you feel, and you've come here, and you think, I am worthless. You look at your life and what you've done, you think, who am I? What have I done? What am I? Well, here we come to see you were made to enjoy the reason why everything exists. You were there. You were made to enjoy him. You were created to know, love, connect with Jesus. That's why you're made. So that is huge. That is glorious. You are not a nobody. You are not a nothing. You are precious. And that is why nothing else in this world satisfies except for Jesus. Because we were made for something so vast and so glorious. When you think about our solar system, we saw pictures of it earlier in the service, didn't we? At the centre of our solar system is the sun. And the sun's gravitational pull keeps all the planets spinning round in the right place, doesn't it? If we were to replace the sun with something else, something smaller, then all the planets would fly off in chaos. In the same way, we were created in our life to have Jesus, the sun, at the centre of our life. And when he is in the proper place, then things in our life spin in their proper orbit. But when we remove him and put something else there, what happens? Chaos. Absolute chaos. Everything flies apart and it's a mess. Maybe today you can see that you've been putting something else at the center of your life. And it's not big enough. Things are falling apart because you're living for something that can't be sustained, that can't sustain the weight of your expectation to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. And Jesus in his kindness today is reminding us, that's my place. You were made to know me, to enjoy me, put me back there. And maybe that's what we need to do in our hearts now is repent, turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry I've wandered. I'm sorry we're putting other things there. There is nobody that compares to you. I'm going to put you in first place. You're going to have preeminence as we see in this passage. Because Jesus, first of all, we're seeing he is the, the reason for everything. But not only is the, he's the, the reason for everything, verse 16 tells us he's the creator of everything. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus isn't just the reason behind everything, but he is the one the Father used, the means used by the Father to create all things. All things we see were made by Jesus. The stars, the planets, the mountains, the seas, the, the rivers, the, the trees, the animals, all created by him. 
from the smallest part of our bodies uh, to the biggest part of our bodies to the biggest part of the universe all of it was created by him for him all made by jesus i did say earlier i will say some big numbers just to try and kind of increase our just thought of how big jesus is uh, we read this illustration in incomparable a few months ago uh, and listen to it again in in the uh, 20th of august 1977 voyager uh, 2 the interplanetary probe was launched to um, look at the universe around us and so it set off and it traveled at the speed of, bull of a bullet 90,000 miles an hour okay so that's pretty fast faster than yeah, most of us could run, I think. But a really fast um, spaceship sent into space, space to take some pictures of what's going on around us. And by the 28th of August, so this is 12 years later, 1989, it reached Neptune, which is 2,700 miles from the Earth. And after that, then, it left the solar system. Now, listen to this. It will not come within one light year of any star for 958,000 years the nearest, to get to the nearest star. And in our galaxy, there's a hundred million stars like our sun. We just can't grasp the vastness, but what does this tell us? Jesus made that. He made it, and it's for him. Jesus made the most complex things that we are just getting our heads around. He made the whole variety of species of animals. Do you know that it's estimated that we only know between 1% and 10%, I know it's a big jump, but that's what I say, we know between 1% and 10% of the species on the Earth. We don't know about the animal life, that's actually been documented. But Jesus made it all. This is the Jesus we're speaking of. Do you see, he's bigger than we realise. Not only that, but look what we're told. He made the things we see, but also the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The Bible is clear about the reality of a spirit world, a world that we can't see, but that is still very real. And actually, there's something in many people that are realizing that, isn't there? And they, they know that. They know there's this evil, this presence of evil that we can't understand or see. You see how quickly things like mediums and their, they sell out, even here in my stake, isn't it? Because people know that, that there's something else. There's another realm. Well, the Bible is clear that that is real. But we're told if we want to be okay with that realm, who do we go to? The one who is greater than anyone in that realm, that's Jesus. So we don't mess about with it, but we come to the one who is the Lord of it all, Jesus. When you think of how, when Jesus was in this world, how he dealt with evil spirits, how did they respond to him? They didn't put up a fight, did they? They, they listened to him. He spoke and they listened. They, they did what he'd said because he's the creator of all things, seen and unseen. They were terrified of Jesus because he had ultimate authority. See, he's the creator of all things. Um, he is the, uh, the reason behind all things. But as well, thirdly, he is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The reason the universe works as it does, the reason that the planets keep spinning, the reason the earth keeps spinning, the reason our lungs keep pumping, pumping, we keep moving, keep breathing, our heart keeps pumping, the reason all of that happens is because there is somebody who sustains it, somebody who keeps it going, and that is Jesus. Every breath we have, every time the earth rotates, he is keeping it all going. You know, if the earth's rotation slowed down, 
by any speed, we would alternately freeze and then burn. It is going at just the right speed it needs to sustain life. You know, the sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and if we get any closer, we're going to burn. If we get any further away, we're going to freeze. We're at just the right position it need to, we need to be to, uh, to have life here. The, the way the, the, the uh, globe is tilted is such that we have seasons. And if it's at any different angle, then we wouldn't have seasons. Uh, and if it, was, if it was any different angle, the, the way th apparently the ocean would move north or south and pile up in massive continents of ice, and we have huge issues because the Earth wouldn't be able to rotate. It's finely balanced. And who keeps all of that in its place? The Bible says the Lord Jesus. He sustains everything. If the moon wasn't in its exact location, we'd be flooded every day uh, by tides. Here is a God who sustains everything. I remember reading a while back about something that scientists can't explain. They can't explain about the assumption of regularity, that is the laws of nature, the way that if you do a test one day, the same will be true tomorrow. So why is it that it's always the same boiling point? You know, uh, the boiling point today is the same boiling point tomorrow. Uh, we, they just don't know. They don't know why they can assume these things. But without assuming those things, they can't do any science. So they have to assume that certain things are going to be the same tomorrow. Why is it the same tomorrow? Why is it that things like that remain the same? Well, the Bible tells us the answer, doesn't it? That Jesus is the one who sustains it. He's the one who keeps it going. One way of saying it is this. You know, when you look at hardware, like a computer we've got in the back there, or your phones, that's the hardware. But inside's the software that kind of makes things work. Jesus is the software of this universe. He keeps everything going. He sustains it. He makes it work. Now, as we think about this, this is Jesus we're talking about, the sustainer of all things. So what? Well, again, I think the first thing you have to do is just say, wow, he's bigger than I realize. We don't even realize what he's doing behind the scenes to keep things going. But again, what wonder at Christmas time to think that the one who made all things and sustains all things became part of his creation. The one who is behind the creation of the universe became smaller than a full stop that we have in our Bibles this morning. He became that small. The one who sustains all things was, will was willing to humble himself to depend on this teenage girl Mary and let her body sustain his body, as it were, in the womb. He humbled himself to that point, and he did that, as we're going to see in a moment, for you and for me. He loves us that much. Doesn't make sense that here's the Jesus who sustains all things. When he says to the storm, to the wind and the waves, stop, they recognize his voice because they say, you're the one who keeps us going anyway. He could do with it whatever he wants because he the, he's the sustainer of all things. Now, this should give us confidence as well, shouldn't it? This isn't telling us, here's one view of Jesus, but this is who Jesus is. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the one who uh, is more powerful than we realize. And he's the one who's with us and who helps us and who we want to tell others about. He is that powerful. Here, we're not being told, let's make Jesus' name great. No, his name is already great. We just need to tell others how great it is. In the same way that you don't say, you know, let's, we need to, gravity needs to be more important in our life. We won't make a difference to gravity. Gravity will work whatever we do. You know, gravity is there. In the same way, this is the reality. Jesus is Lord. He's the creator, sustainer, uh, and he is the reason behind all things. 
So Jesus and God, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus and the universe, he is the creator, sustainer, uh, and reason behind everything. But the third thing, the final thing is this, Jesus and us. Because look where Paul goes next, from the vastness of the universe, verse 18, he tells us, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, doesn't that seem like a bit of a come down? You think, what? He's going from this, this glorious, amazing view of Jesus, and now he starts talking about the church, the church who nobody seems to care about, church who people just kind of walk past and ignore the buildings, that is, or people who feel on the side of society and who feel everybody makes fun of us, and, you know, who are we? But here we're being told that the center of Jesus' plans for the universe is the church. The one who is Lord of all, comes to a world that has rejected him, that has ignored him, and says, I'm going to start by rescuing a people, a people for myself. We've wandered from him. We've gone our own way, but Jesus comes and he pursues and he saves for a people himself. He says, look, I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me. And the church of those he's bringing back to himself. Look at verse 20. Through him, through Jesus, that is, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So the great plan is to bring all things back together, to fix all things. But he starts with the new creation of the church, one by one, person by person. How did this world fall apart? By people turning against God. How is it going to be fixed? It's going to start by people returning to God, by being brought back to him, reconciled to him as part of the new creation, uh, we're a glimpse of it here, but one day in, f- in full, when he returns, it will come. And how does it happen? It happens, verse, end of verse 20, by making peace by the blood of his cross. The one who sustained all things, the hands that flung stars into space, were also the same hands that then willingly surrendered to the cross. The one who has one right to put it, the impeaceable became pierceable for us. The one who couldn't be seen became seen. The one who had no body got a body so that he could take our place, live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserved to die. See, Jesus did all that. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. As Jesus was having his nails put through his hands, he was sustaining the lungs of the one who was doing it to him. This is the God we have, and he willingly did that. He could have stopped it at any point. He willingly did it for you and for me, so that we could be reconciled to God, so we could be uh, united again with him. And as a result of that, verse 18 tells us, he's the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, he rose again to show this was true, that in everything he might be preeminent, he might be first. Ultimately, that's the big application of this morning, isn't it? Where should Jesus be in our lives? Look at him. Look at what he's like. How can he be second, third, fourth place? He needs to be first because he was created to be first. That's the order that things are made in. Jesus first. He's to be the whole of our lives. I read this week about a footballer from Notts County called Dan Crowley. He's a Christian footballer. And after he scored last week, apparently in his interview after the match, he spoke about his faith in Jesus. And people, as people do, took the mick out of him, made fun of him. But another footballer in his team, John Bostock, who was another Christian, said that, no, our faith isn't just part of us, he said. It's not the cherry on top of the cake. It's the ingredients of what makes us. I thought that was a great picture, isn't it? So is Jesus for you and me, is he just the cherry on top? 
kind of, we could live without him, but he does make it a bit nicer to have a chair on top. Or is he the whole ingredients? Is he everything? See, Jesus did all of this for us to be preeminent, to be the first, to be number one. He's to be number one. He's to be first. And when we put anything else there, it doesn't work because he is so vast and glorious. Nothing can hold our expectations like him. Let's repent. Let's turn back to him to say, Lord, please be big and be first in my life today. Maybe this morning you're not a Christian. What's stopping you following him? What's stopping you believing in him this morning? Maybe you'd start to see this and you think, well, if this is true, my life can't remain the same. If this is true, then that means I'm going to have to live differently because Jesus tells me how to live and I don't want to do that. I still want to live for me. That's the temptation is to think, oh, well, if this is true, then what does it mean? Well, imagine you had a friend who was seriously unwell and they were dying. But the doctor comes and says to this person, says to them, look, you can live if you take this medication. But if you take this medication to keep you alive, you can't eat chocolate for the rest of your life. What are you going to do? Death or chocolate? Well, you know, you might think, well, it is, I do really like chocolate. But in the light of that, you see, when Jesus comes along and he says, look, with me is true life. Yes, that's going to mean things for your life. Yes, it's going to be things that need to change. But look, this is true. This is life. This is what it's all about. Come to me. Trust in me. He demands that because he is the Lord and he is to be first. Now, as I said, this is a passage that I can't do justice to as we look through it. But read this through today. Read it through this week and reflect on what this tells us about God, what it shows us about who Jesus is, how glorious he is. He is the one who um, all things are made for. He is the one who sustains all things. He is the one who made all things. He is the one who is God in the flesh, the, the one who reveals to us what God is like. And he is the one who did it for us. He came to this world, died on the cross for us. We can't put him to the side. He can't be on the wings of our life. He needs to be front and center, center stage, not just the cherry on top, the whole ingredients. And let's pray that this Christmas time, that we get to enjoy all the gifts he gives us, but to put him first and to, to uh, pray that he would be so much bigger in our lives that we'd live for his glory. Let's pray before we sing our last hymn together. Lord Jesus, we ask now for forgiveness for how small we make you. We ask you for forgiveness for simply leaving you in the manger, as it were, and not remembering that the one there is the one who is behind all things, the one who makes God visible, the one who is the reason behind everything, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one there who is the one who came to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Help us now to live in the light of these truths, for Jesus to be first, for Jesus to be big, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let's sing to close. Jesus is